Happy Tag Tuesday. How are you? I'm good. And you? I'm Denise Cooper. And I'm Ann Police. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> We're going to get it right one of these days. And I'm No, if excited. you got it right, I would feel, I don't know. It Out of place? It would feel weird. Yeah. It would feel like, where am I? I <laughs> you expect nothing but the worst from me. <laughs> I just expect the consistency of yeah. not doing it correctly. Well, and that's what I am. I'm all about consistency. You know... It, nothing, there is no wrong. <laughs> I, there might be. No, no. We just were trying to do it one way. We could go back to the. I don't original want to go back. Okay. I don't. I don't go back, Denise. You know, I'm all about forward movement. Okay. Mm. I was just saying. <laughs> well, we have a very special guest with us today. He's a guest that uh, we've gotten a lot of feedback about. He's our editor, Aiden. Aiden Bloomstein, we're glad to have you with us. Hello. Thank you for having me back. I think for the third time. Has there been a guest that's been on? Three times? No. no. Wow. Just you. <gasps> Look at that. You are a reoccurring guest. Yeah. This is like the Saturday Night Live Club where you get like a colored jacket or something. I want a jacket, of course. A tag I'm jacket. Gonna, yeah. No, <laughs> I think we should do I'm that. Give some you, merch. Oh, that's look, a good idea. Like some merch? Yeah. <laughs> Two average girls merch? I want a sweatshirt. You want to wear a big jacket with a big T-A-G on your back? A big sure. pink T-A-G? Yeah. He's, Okay, I want to see that happen at the USC campus. Or a, or a sticker. <laughs> we could do at least stickers. I'd put a sticker on my water. I have stickers. I do have a sticker. That's cool. I do have a sticker. We are having Aiden on again because the last time he was on, um, he was talking about the conflict with Israel and Hamas. And he gave us some great insight. He had gone to Israel in the summer. He had experienced, had a great experience there at that time. And he was very close to what was happening after the October 7th um, massacre. You had an opportunity, and we wanted you back on today because you had an opportunity just recently to go back to Israel. So why don't you tell the audience a little bit about the opportunity that you had and how it came about um, and maybe just give a little recap of why you're involved in this in the first place yeah that's a it's a big question so I went with the Maccabee task force on a 10-day trip to Israel to visit the sites and speak with people that were affected uh, by the uh, terrorist attack on October 7th we went at the end of December I got back on January 9th so it's still very fresh for me being back for only three weeks now in the United States. We went to speak with families that were affected, families who have uh, family members in Gaza still being held hostage. Uh, we spoke to people in communities uh, that were attacked on October 7th, specifically Kfar Aza. We spoke to someone who survived the Nova Music Festival. Uh, and political leaders, IDF soldiers, the whole the whole um, the whole run of it. We had professors explain the national security implications. 
Uh, and while these professors are teaching, most people in Israel, uh, everyone, there's mandatory conscription, so everyone has uh, served in the military. Some are still in the reserves, and this professor just so happened to still be in the reserves. And she explained very well the sophistication of Hamas, the, the complexities of the organization, um, and detailed the attack on October 7th. We uh, spoke to the former international spokesman for the IDF. Uh, he's now stepped down from that position. But he offered great insight into the conflict, the operations of the IDF, the interactions with the United States and a plethora of other things. So we had a very uh, well-crafted uh, speaker group um, that spoke to the 25 students um, that were on this trip, and we were uh, students from across the United States, um, from the East Coast to the West Coast schools. And so we had this, this experience where we got to see firsthand the effects of October 7th directly. Um, and that was something that I knew I wanted because like we all know through the media and through me talking on the last, uh, the last podcast, college campuses have really been the focal point of anti-Israel, anti-Zionist, uh, anti-Semitic sentiment um, in the country. So I knew that I wanted to get these firsthand experiences and then take them back to campus to be able to share uh, share my experiences. I think when we spoke last time, it was somewhat at the beginning of the conflict. Some It was early on. We had just seen the tipping point of these college campuses, and it got worse. These campuses have turned into... Well, let me back up. I don't think that October 7th caused more anti-Semitism. I don't. I think that mm -hmm. October 7th woke up and emboldened the anti-Semites to express their anti-Semitism. That's really been under our noses this entire time. I really don't think any anti-Semites were, were created because of October 7th. Now, I like to start off all the conversations that I have about this conflict by saying that two people can suffer at the same time and then not be mutually exclusive. I fully recognize that what's mm -hmm. happening in Gaza is awful. It's sad. It is really heart-wrenching to see images of families being torn apart, that is that is tough, and the Palestinians in Gaza are undeniably suffering. So are Israelis, and they continue to, to suffer. They suffered on October 7th. They suffered in the most brutal of ways by Hamas. So both of those things can be true, um, but seemingly one side has chosen which suffering to, to harp on. And there, there's a story that I have coming out of the of, of the trip where I went to Stirot, which is a city, uh, the largest municipality right outside of Gaza, um, the largest Israeli municipality right outside of the Gaza Strip. We went to the municipal center, kind of like the control room for the city, and we saw a video of a Hamas truck with a large gun mounted on the back of it mow a family down that was walking on the streets on October 7th. Just completely brutalized them right in the middle of the street and killed all of them. We asked, why was that video not shown? I haven't seen that video before. Why has that not been circulated? And the city manager stood out and said, well, because there's a child in that video. We have respect for that child. We don't want to publicize that child's death. 
But then the content that's coming out of Gaza is all of children's suffering. There's cameras in families' faces of mothers holding their children. So you can see the tactics that are used by either side. One who has respect for the dead and those that were suffering Israel, and then one that wants to publicize it and put it on mainstream media. When you went this last time, you visited sites that you had visited the first time that you went. What were some of those images that you saw, the difference from the time you first saw them to now? Yeah, so I don't like uh, tchotchkes. Little, when I travel, I don't get like um, like posters or little like figurines. Mm-hmm. I, um, but I want to buy something, right, to, uh, mem- to remember my trip. So I bought a pair of boots uh, last time I was in Israel in March. And I bought these boots actually in Sterot. Um, the city, there's a kind of a strip mall looking thing, outdoor mall. Um, and there's a small shoe store right there that I walked in and, and bought the boots from. Mm-hmm. I drove past that strip mall today, or when I went to Israel, and it was empty, completely evacuated. There's no one living in this city. When I went the first time, there was... A restaurant with people sitting outside and people shopping and going in and out. There was life there, and now it's completely desolate and evacuated. There's no one there. Was there people that you were able to speak to who uh, had chosen to stay? So there's no choice. The Israeli military has mandated evacuations of these areas because it's still such a hostile zone. Uh, Hamas fires rockets into Israel daily still since the war, and we're past the 100 days mark. When I was in Tel Aviv, uh, we were sitting in a Ethiopian Jews uh, center, a community center, and we're discussing kind of best strategies for when we go back to campus to articulate what we have seen, and um, we hear a siren. We, we All of our phones light up. We know that, okay, rockets are coming from Gaza um, to where we are directly. And we're in Tel Aviv, so we have a minute and 30 seconds to get into a bomb shelter. So we leave the community center very quickly, start running across the street, find the nearest bomb shelter, go down inside, and it's a dark cement, uh, long, almost, it kind of reminded me of a cargo uh, a mm. tanker thing that's on ships mm-hmm. uh, but it was completely right. cement so it was long and um i was in the very back and and so these are this is still the daily life of israelis that they are still facing rockets um luckily the the iron dome shoots down 95 percent of them um, the concern then is the falling debris from from the shot down rocket uh so you have to wait 30 seconds or so uh after or i think it's three minutes after uh, the siren before you can go outside i didn't realize there was that that accuracy number is is impressive 95 percent. yeah and it's also um uh, israel doesn't shoot down every rocket from from gaza um Mm -hmm. Rockets that are the trajectory is to go into maybe an open field or an unpopulated area They don't shoot down simply because the Iron Dome rockets are so expensive It's very very expensive yeah. to operate the Iron Dome. The United States is a major supporter in the Iron Dome um, so on, honestly without the United States support Israel wouldn't be able to uh, operate operate the Iron Dome 
um, in its full capacity because of how expensive mm-hmm. it is. So if you have kind of a skewed number, right, with 95%, well, they don't, they intentionally yeah. don't shoot down uh, these uh, rockets. But Hamas knows that all the, the likelihood of these rockets killing an Israeli is so low. They simply do it to terrorize, uh, to terrorize Israel. They're not looking to kill people. That's not the intention. What was your purpose in going? Yeah, yeah. I think my purpose was threefold. One, I wanted to look Israelis in the eye and tell them that there are people in America, college students specifically, that support them, that know what they're doing is right, um, that love and think about them. So that was goal number one. Goal number two was to learn about the conflict, uh, get as many firsthand testimonies as I can, take as many pictures, gather as much content, and then share it, not only on my Instagram, but uh, in PowerPoints and uh, lectures that I could, speeches that I potentially could give on campus. Uh, my third uh, reason for going was to show people that it's safe to go to Israel. Uh, you should go to Israel. If there's any opportunity to go to learn for yourself, then you absolutely should take it um, and go experience it for yourself because I think that there's that's the most authentic way to learn about a conflict as complex as this one. That's just the opposite of what we're basically hearing and understanding here in the U.S. is now's not the time to go to Israel. But you're saying, no, if you have a desire to go, you should go? Absolutely. The country largely uh, depends on tourism for a lot of its economy. And that has completely gone um, gone away since the war. Um, but my... Uh, <laughs> Last Friday, my roommate was robbed in front of our apartment violently by two, by two uh, suspected gang members. Um, so, and he went to Israel with me. So, seemingly, we're safer in a country that's at war than in Los Angeles. <laughs> I mean, I, I think you're accurate when you say that. Actually, yeah, I am sorry that happened to him. You said you went over there. Your second part of your mission was to learn and then to bring that information back. Mm. Did you learn anything new that was maybe unexpected? Yeah, I think that uh, the people that we spoke to were highly intelligent. They are deep thinkers about this conflict. So it was nice to hear their perspective. Um, To pick one, one story, we spoke to a member of Zaka, which is an organization that um, picks up bodies of people after they've died and are taken uh, then for burial. The Jewish tradition is to bury people within 24 hours of their death, um, mm-hmm. obviously, because of the magnitude of this attack. Um, that wasn't always possible. But this guy's job was to pick up pick up bodies. That's what That's what he does. Um, so on October 7th, he got a call um, that there were bodies in the Gaza envelope, which is the area in Israel right outside of the Gaza Strip. Uh, and so he was told to go get his truck and start driving down to to Gaza, uh, the Gaza envelope, to start picking up bodies. And as he's driving down there, there are bodies lining the highway on his way down. Mm. And it was to a scale that um, overwhelmed him. His truck was 
filled to the brim and then his supervisors told them to keep filling it because there were more bodies and didn't know when the next time he would be able to uh, offload his truck. Uh, So he went to a kibbutzim to pick up bodies from, from, from there that were killed. And he goes into a house and there's a woman um, laid over the bed with her pants down to her ankles, um, mm. fingernails found in all places of her body. And when they turned her over, she was holding a hand grenade. This is the level of brutality that occurred on October 7th and what he saw firsthand when mm. doing his job of picking up those that died. You said in a quote that I found on uh, social media, because the internet is an amazing place, mm-hmm. you said, throughout the trip, I did my best not to become overcome with emotion. It was extraordinarily hard. But what cut most deeply was Mount Herzl. Herzl. Am I saying that right? Yep. Herzl. To see the sanctity of life Israel has, and to contrast that with Hamas, disrespect for life, nothing can prepare you. So in speaking of this, this man's experience of being overwhelmed, did you, was there, was that the pinnacle of, of your trip as far as your emotion was, is concerned? No, no, it wasn't actually. I, uh, I did my best to emotionally detach from the situation, um, and take what he said as fact, as something that occurred and not gain this emotional attachment to it. Um, obviously that was extraordinarily difficult but what would what what did um did get me was mount herzl is the national cemetery of um, the idf so all of the soldiers that had fallen on october 7th um most are buried in, in mount herzl and they have a gorgeous uh memorial for all of the soldiers that died uh, that have died sort of protecting the state of israel and it's this massive uh, cylindrical um, structure that has plaques for each person that had died. Uh, but then outside is where everyone is buried. And I'm walking through this gorgeous park almost with massive trees. It's eerily quiet. And each of these... Uh, spaces for uh, IDF soldiers to be buried has a headstone and their names are written in Hebrew. The dates in which they passed are in Hebrew. But what's in a normal numeral is their age. And most of these soldiers are 20, 19, Hmm. 21. They're my age. Um, they have the same experiences that I've had, um, but have died at the hands of one of the most brutal groups in, on this earth, uh, defending their country. So to see all those people um, that have died since October 7th, they're running out of room in Mount Herzl just because of the sheer magnitude um, but to see them and have such a close relation to them, I felt like I was connected to them because they were they were my age. 
that that I was overcome with emotion and the level of care that Israel has um, for those that have died serving their country um, was was overwhelming for me after then seeing the the lack of uh, humanity that Hamas has for for people um, what we didn't know at the time was there was a, a mother that was sitting down next to her son's grave um, she was sitting on a chair that she had brought with with tissues um, and she was crying and have like putting the tissues over her eyes and she her purpose was to sit there and and cry next to her son um, a few weeks ago we found out that her son on October 7th had been decapitated and his head was taken into Gaza and attempted her son's death, of course. But we had no idea the magnitude in which her son was mutilated and brutalized when, when he was killed. Um, so that oh, I reopened a wound uh, last week of seeing that. Um, worst, the worst of the worst stuff. You, you talked about how you kept composure and you tried to stay neutral and just tried to take it in as fact and history and experiences without getting emotional. When you got home, did it catch up with you? Uh, no. I think, I think doing stuff like this, talking about it, talking with people about it is very helpful. Um, mm -hmm. I uh, share the burden of knowledge um, because there's a burden of carrying um, stories of this magnitude of the worst things that a human could do to another human. Um, for me, it's helpful talking about it and, and talking to, um, to you guys and to anyone that's curious. Have you had a lot of uh, speaking engagements there, especially on campus? Have you been able to reach out to other groups and, and speak to them about what your experience was? Yeah, so I have a, 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 I've spoken to the leaders of the Jewish community on campus when we have an event set up at the beginning of um, February. So I'll be speaking to a larger group of students. I've received um, a surprising amount of media attention uh, that I was not <laughs> expecting. Um, so I have been able to share my experience with a larger, larger audience, which has been which has been very nice. The unexpected media attention is that because you're a college student, and what's this college student doing going over there? That that we want to talk to him, that type of thing. I think it's the the fact that I'm a non-Jewish college student that is advocating uh, supporting Israel. And that seems to be uncommon nowadays. Uh, so there's, I think, a level of interest in talking to me and getting my perspective, especially since I've actually been there and have seen the effects of October 7th. After your first, um, your first podcast with us on the subject, I had people ask me where you got the interest and where you got the gumption for lack of a better sure. word to go and do these kinds of things on behalf of israel why are you so passionate or why are you such a supporter of of 
Israel and the Jewish community? Yeah, so I think um, it, it all started with one of my close friends uh, who is Jewish. At, uh, when we were freshmen, he would, uh, the first week or so of us being friends, he invited us to Shabbat dinner on Friday at the Hillel on campus. We went and had a great time, and the community was more than welcoming for me. And then we kept going every Friday and got closer and closer to the community. Uh, and last year, in December, I believe, they asked if I'd be interested in going on a trip to Israel um, in March to learn about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I'm a public policy major, so I've learned about it in classes before from a policy lens, but I've never obviously been um, and thought that it would be a great learning experience for me to be more engaged in a, in a conflict. The Jewish community on campus has been more than welcoming uh, to me and has treated me just like their own and welcomed me, accepted me, and uh, has really been a community that I've felt a part of on, on, on campus. Uh, so I went in March to learn about the conflict, got, uh, again, firsthand experience, firsthand knowledge of the relationship between Palestinians and Israelis and the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli government. Um, and at the beginning of this year, they asked if I would be willing to join the board uh, a, a school year, not calendar year, um, Yeah, to join the board of Trojans for Israel a pro-Israel advocacy on campus, and this is something that aligned with my views. Um, I would say that I'm uh, socially uh, very liberal and progressive in my, in, my, in my politics, and Israel seemed to line up exactly with that. They are a country that believes in democracy, uh, that believes in human rights and the rights of an individual in a place where those types of values and beliefs aren't held in the Middle East. I mean, it's the... the the shining light of democracy in a really dark, dark place. Uh, so, of course, I fundamentally believe that the state of Israel should exist. I believe in, in Zionism, the a Jewish people's uh, right to self-determine in their ancestral homeland. That's simply the definition of Zionism, nothing more, nothing about policies. And I believe that. I, I fully believe that the Jewish people have a right to be in Israel, and then Israel has a right to exist. And for Israel to exist, the United States needs to give aid and, and, and support this country. So that's kind of the premise of this organization. And those are all ideas that I bought into. So I said, yes. Then on October 7th, I saw the Jewish community that was once vibrant and um, very active become depressed and were grieving. Every Jewish student on campus has a connection to Israel in some way or another. Uh, and they felt very extraordinarily hurt by these attacks. When I saw them, they had been there for me when I needed support or or, or help, and so it was my um, obligation then to step up for them when they needed support and help. Uh, so I I didn't really see it as it wasn't a choice for me. I I saw my friends hurting. And then their campus completely turned against them. So I needed I needed to speak out and become active in the issue. And, and listen, I'm not a activist by nature. I'm not posting crazy things or wearing crazy shirts or putting pins on my backpack for things that I believe in. But this was something that was so obvious to me that people on campus were getting wrong and that people in this country were getting wrong and about it. 
What is the temperature on campus now? It's been um, largely quiet. Um, we had the U.S. Senate debate, the U.S. Uh, California Senate debate uh, on on our campus. Um, Adam Schiff and a few of the other uh, candidates were, were there giving uh, having a debate. And then a ceasefire now protest started after. But my understanding of that group, it, there weren't college students. Um, these were people outside the community that wanted to protest this event. Um, I think the uh, patience, maybe that's not the right word, but the uh, fortitude of these protesters doesn't exist. They've, they'll find a new <laughs> thing to protest tomorrow or the next day. Um, so it's been it's been pretty quiet. We haven't heard any in any large protests occurring. You talked about the organization that sent you to Israel this time, yeah. the Maccabee Task Force. Is it the Foundation Task Force? Tell us a little bit about that organization. Yeah, so this is a a, a, a foundation um, that is was supported by uh, Mr. Adelson, um, now supported and chaired by his wife. Um, and they fund these student groups to go to Israel and learn about this conflict. They don't want their name to be on anything. They don't want. They have a very low presence. They want to give grants to Hillel's and Chabad's to on campuses to organize these events and set them up. And they just want to be the funders of them. They don't want any publicity, any press. They just simply want to make these trips happen. Um, after October 7th, they said that they needed to become more proactive because the space on college campuses was so dire. So they said, we need to gather alumni of this of these trips and go on our first on our first fact finders post-war trip to to see to see what happened. And so now they're starting up their regularly scheduled uh, trips by supporting um, these campuses, these campus Hillel's across the country again. Um, so I think those should start up and- Not be against them. Yeah, and, and the uh, American uh, Jewry has largely felt that the their friends have turned against them, their neighbors have turned against mm -hmm. them, um, and they've lost support with people that they once found support in. Now, the, the Hillel on campus is extraordinarily progressive. The, the students on campus are very progressive. Uh, the, the Jewish students that frequent Hillel are very progressive. And they felt like their progressive friends have totally abandoned them, totally abandoned them. Hmm. Um, it's, it's interesting because the progressive narrative seems to be to always look to the, the group that is suffering the most. And history would say that Jews, in, for the most part, have suffered greatly over the decades and over the years. And yet it seems like they just keep taking it and getting it more and more and and nobody seems to be coming to their aid yeah and and this is something um that i don't i don't always say but uh, i feel comfortable in this space saying it that um the narrative for palestinians are that they have been labeled the eternal victims that 
when a society, I, I really believe when a society is in crisis, it does two things. It can one, look for what to do to get them out of the crisis or two, who to blame. And Gaza very much mm-hmm. is in crisis. It has been for years. And they have looked to Israel to blame rather than take accountability and responsibility for, for their people um, and, and their, and their uh, success and progress. Hamas has uh, been given billions, billions of dollars in aid from Western countries. And what have they done with it? They've built terror tunnels. They've built rockets. Mm-hmm. They haven't supported their people. If you're looking for who to blame in in Gaza for the situation, for the attack, look to Hamas to blame. Hamas does not care about the Palestinian people. If they did, then October 7th would have never occurred because they knew the response that Israel would have. Would you kill 1,200 of their civilians? Israel is going to respond. Hamas knew that. Hamas knew that Palestinians would die because of their actions, and they were okay with it. They were okay with it. That's what they were looking for, in my opinion, was a major response by Israel for uh, 20,000 Palestinians, is what the Gaza Health Ministry says, run by Hamas, uh, have have died. And so the international community, of course, is going to condemn Israel. The UN is going to, of course, put resolutions out saying that they need to, to have a ceasefire. And condemn Israel for its actions, but that's what Hamas wanted. Hamas wanted the the narrative in the West to shift against Israel. Um, so I think that in a society um, that is looking to blame someone else for their problems without taking accountability for their own and for their own people, it's a ceasefire. There's ceasefire talk right now. I know it's continually happening, but I've heard recently that they are talking about having. A ceasefire and it looks like it's close to possibly happening as a matter of fact as of today Hamas leaders were looking over the documents that were proposed in the ceasefire my feeling was I, I highly doubt that they're gonna accept those those parameters but what are you hearing yeah um, from what you're what you're learning and yeah so I like I said I follow this very closely it's been my life since October 7th and keeping up with this conflict um, the way that you negotiate with Hamas is really complicated so first Israel or the United States does not negotiate directly with Hamas that's not how it works the intermediary party has been Qatar um, so Israel or the United States talks with diplomats to Qatar. The Qatari diplomats still don't talk to Hamas in Gaza. They talk to the political department of Hamas that has an office in Qatar. They talk, the, the political um, arm of Hamas then talks to the military arm in Gaza. And then their responses from the military arm in, in in Gaza has to then go back to the political arm in Qatar and then the Qatari government and then back to Israel or the United States. So it's very complicated when you want to talk to Hamas. Um, and these negotiations are complex. So last, a, f- a few weeks ago, it had been reported, unconfirmed, I think, by the Israeli government, but it had been reported that Israel offered a two-month ceasefire for the release of all hostages. Uh, Hamas refused that. Hamas said Mm -hmm. that they would like a full ceasefire for the release of hostages. Now, the goal of Israel, 
uh, that had been communicated to me was that they want, um, they have a twofold goal. One, to bring back all of their hostages. Um, they even want, they want the bodies of those that have died. So it's not simply the fact that uh, maybe some are living, maybe some are not. That doesn't matter. They want the bodies of, the, of, of those that have died. And the second goal is to completely eradicate Hamas. Um, its military capabilities as well as as well as its administrative control over Gaza so completely cripple their their control um, and until those things are done of uh, when you were there what was the general feeling towards Americans and and our stance on the conflict they had two views of America um, or two different views of America they think that one the American public has completely turned against them and does not support them. Now, they love Joe Biden. They think the US administration has given them unwavering support, and frankly, they have. The, the intelligence officers that I spoke to said the United States has been an incredible ally through all of this and has done whatever it can um, to support them and give them the intelligence, the operational knowledge, um, the the funds, the equipment to carry out all operations that they that they see fit. So they see the administration as being an unbelievable supporter of of Israel. There's a video of Joe Biden giving an interview, um, in directing these words toward Hezbollah in the north, um, or Americans will call it Hezbollah. Uh, in the north, and he says, "Don't, don't." He says, "Don't," um, and they have that plastered everywhere, where it's like a big "Don't" sign with Joe Biden's face. Um, obviously, the Biden administration can't publicize this too much because he's in an election year, and his party, uh, members of his party, do not support um, Israel and supports uh, uh, people in Gaza. Uh, the Palestinians, so we can't advertise this as much. Um, but behind the scenes, the administration has been doing everything that it has. The actual podcast. Let's do it. While you were there, while you were there, where did you stay? I stayed in Netanya, which is north of Tel Aviv. We stayed there strategically, so uh, Netanya has never had rockets um, fired at it. It's at an interesting spot where kind of the rockets from Gaza aren't able to reach there. And the rockets that come from Hezbollah in the north don't really uh, that far south. So it's a place where life is going, it's continuing as usual? Life is continuing everywhere as usual in, in Israel, except for in the north, because a, a lot of the communities have been evacuated um, because of the threat of Hezbollah uh, entering into Israel. But the, And also the southern communities around Gaza and the Gaza envelope have been evacuated but other than that the city the the country is functioning it needs to function people are going to work people are a lot of people have been called up from reserves and are serving in the military it is a country at war um but also in a lot of the hotels that were nearby in Netanya and in 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 Tel Aviv they have people staying in them that have been evacuated from their homes, refugees in their own country because it's not safe to live in their homes anymore. So while, mm -hmm. yes, the country is still, there is normal life happening, um, 
there, there, there's a level of depression. There is emotional depression. Um, they may face economic uh, depression. We haven't gotten there yet. Uh, and there's a sense of purpose with everyone that I found that everyone has a role to play in the country and they all want to do it well. Whether you're, I spoke to a commander of a paratrooper uh, unit that was in Gaza hours before I spoke with him, um, to our tour guide who says, you know, my job is now to share with the world what happened on October 7th and bring people to these places. Everyone has a, this incredible sense of purpose. Um, moving, really moving. Now, because there is a mandatory military service mm-hmm. for the folks there, is is there also, as we would refer to it, a, a, like a draft? I know you said they're calling up the reserves, but then are they making it mandatory for other people to, to come and serve as well? So there's a requirement when you come of age of 18 to serve in the military for, I think, three years for men, two and a half for women. Um and many people stay in the reserves after that. You have to, there's a mandatory amount of time that you have to do in the reserves, but a lot of people stay and continue to do it. It's a limited number of hours a year. Uh, but once uh, October 7th happened, all a lot of those reserves were called up, I think to the tune of like 300,000. <laughs> Still, it, that's, I mean, that's, that's a large a portion. Of, that's a large of, portion. And so when yeah. a IDF soldier dies in Gaza, a lot of people there's the amount of connection is is huge so the death of one idf soldier affects a lot of people just because of how well connected this country is how small it is mm-hmm. so I understand what is zionism okay no, yeah so there's a lot of talk in the media and catchphrases that have been associated with this conflict and one of them is a zionist can you explain what it means to be a Zionist? Yeah, so this word on college campuses has been um, like a dirty word, like, oh, you don't want to be called a Zionist. And I've had friends right. that are in their newsroom that are like, are you a Zionist? Pe- people are asked, are you a Zionist? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, the definition is lost on a lot of people. Simply Zionism means that in the belief of the right of a Jewish people to self-determine in their ancestral homeland has nothing to do with governmental policies against the Palestinians, nothing to do with IDF operations, simply believes that the Jewish people have a right to return to Israel specifically as their homeland. So if Hmm. you want to be called a Zionist, then I'm I'm a Zionist. There are many people that are Zionists. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, that word has been, been correlated with so much, so much governmental policies. Um, now Israel isn't perfect. There have been in like currently the judicial reform bill before October 7th was extraordinarily concerning and, uh, I'll be one of the first people to criticize the Israeli government. Um, but at the root of it, you have to believe, or Zionists believe, that the Jewish people have a right to return to the their ancestral homeland. It's actually, when people say, oh, they're a, a white colonial state, one, you've never walked around Israel, and there are black Jews, there are <laughs> Jews from Iraq, there are Jews from Iran, that's 
very clearly on are not white but it's actually the largest uh the largest decolonization effort ever uh, israel was colonized by by it was controlled under the british mandate for quite some time and the the origination of the jewish people was israel and so simply returning to the land that was once yours There's another word that is used a lot when you hear um, genocide. Give us a little brief description why people are saying that. Well, it's it's hard to uh, explain why people are 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 saying it, but um, it, it's again one of the dirty words, uh, the worst dirty word I think that you can say. Um, and the fact of the matter is, I'll just give some facts that before October 7th, there was peace. Palestinians weren't dying at the hands of Israelis in Gaza. Um, there were 20,000 Gazans that entered into Israel every day to work and gain wages. Palestinians from the West Bank that entered into Israel to work were permitted to, to work. There are Arabs in Israel that are Arab Israelis that have full citizenship in Israel, so it's not an apartheid state. Um, and the population of Palestinians has been rising over the years exponentially. A key factor of uh, genocide is the mass reduction of population. We saw that in the Holocaust, with six million Jews died. A major decrease in the Jewish population around the world that has still yet to recover to its pre-Holocaust times, has yet to recover. In okay. um, a, a key factor of genocide is a reduction in population. So if we're just gonna look at the Gaza Strip, in 2012, there were 1.6 million people in the Gaza Strip. In 2021, there were 2.1 million people in the Gaza Strip, an increase of 2%. In the West Bank, there were, in 2012, 2.6 million people. And then in 2021, there were 3.1 uh, million people. So the population of Palestinians is rising. Um, so when someone says stop the genocide, genocide isn't occurring to the killing of Palestinians during the conflict. Um, uh, this conflict, it has to be taken into context in Gaza. Um, this is an urban war. There, the buildings are very, I've seen Gaza. I saw Gaza in uh, just this last trip. I was standing on a bluff and I could see the fire and smoke from like, like could see it it's a very densely populated area um there are buildings very close together very tall buildings next to each other so it's in an urban environment and last time that i checked the uh, ratio for combatants killed to civilians killed was one to nine for every one combatant killed nine civilians died oh. in an urban context um it's a pretty good statistic 
Israel is doing that every is, yeah, that that is um it's a it's a heart wrenching number when you think of nine people, but yeah. in an urban context, um that number is unheard of. Someone in the a professor in the National uh, War College, uh, the head of the Institute of Urban War said um, he has never seen the he's never seen a country go more out of its way than Israel has to protect against civilian life. There are mandatory evacuations that Israel has shared to uh, Palestinians in Gaza, say, leave this area immediately. Um, there'll be military operations. They've dropped leaflets. Uh, they do an unprecedented number of things to to prevent against civilian casualties. There's a, a hierarchy of when Israel wants to strike a building, it first needs to be approved by the, the commander on site. Once that commander approves it, if it meets a certain threshold, then you have to go to the commander above that commander and then the commander above that commander. When, when these strikes uh, have the potential to kill lots of civilians, it eventually has to reach the war cabinet of Yoav Gallant, who's the, the Minister of Defense and the Prime Minister. Um, there are levels upon levels of uh, approvals that need to occur before the IDF strikes in, in, in Gaza. Um, so while the loss of any life is uh, regrettable and we wish didn't happen, Israel is doing everything it, it can to, to prevent. Okay. Um, talk a little bit about the UN involvement in this conflict. I, I don't think we um, hear a lot about that, but there are some very specific groups within the UN that are dealing with this conflict. Is that correct? Yes. So in Gaza, the UN presence is called, uh, it's called UNRWA. UNRWA stands for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees in the Near East. More easily put, UNRWA. Um, <laughs> UNRWA has proven to be a actor and collaborator directly with Hamas. There have been over 10 UNRWA employees that were found to be Hamas terrorists and enter into Israel and kill Israeli civilians. Now these are employees of the of employees of the UN. Um, just this uh. past week, uh, a ton of U.S. Uh, uh, excuse me of Western countries that give money and fund UNRWA have pulled their funding out. Um, the United States, France, the UK. Uh, a, a laundry list of of countries that that have supported UNRWA are ceasing their funding. Uh, we've heard stories of UNRWA uh, schools being the home of Hamas rockets. So these are elementary schools that are run by the UN, being the homes of uh, of, of rockets. There have also been reports unconfirmed reports that UNRWA teachers have actually held or been in the presence of hostages um, hospitals that are ran by UNRWA they're found to be these Hamas tunnels underneath uh, these hospitals UNRWA 
effectively by all accounts um, is in direct collaboration with Hamas. Um, and Israel has provided significant intelligence to prove this. And subsequently, all of these Western nations have pulled its funding out. So when you hear UNRWA... Oh, yeah. That remains to be seen. What is the um, U.S. influence on Israel that you've seen? Yeah, so I wish I could tell you. I swore not to tell the person uh, who told us this, but I can tell you is a high-ranking IDF official um, said that the United States is directly involved in military operations in Israel, directly overseeing military operations in Israel. If the United States does not want a strike to occur, Israel will not strike that target. If the United States says, no, don't do this, Israel will not do it. Now, this is because of the billions of dollars in aid that we give to Israel. We have supported them financially for quite some time now, and like I said, have given billions of dollars in military aid to them so we have a large level of influence in their military operations. So it makes no sense to me when there's members of Congress that say we need to cease funding to Israel. Well, if you cease funding to Israel, you give up that level of quasi-control over the military occupations. And I'll tell you that this war would look a lot different if the United States did not handcuff Israel in doing a lot of, uh, of, of operations. If there wasn't a level of scrutiny that the United States put on Israel, and then I think this war would look a lot different. So if you give up that aid, you give up that, um, you give up that control. So it doesn't make sense to me why uh, politicians would advocate for the removal of aid because you would be giving it to some of these things and just don't know having you on here has been very very insightful and we really appreciate you taking the time yeah absolutely and i hope that this is a uh, um i don't have all the answers i uh, can't explain everything but i hope that uh, those that are curious um, that want to know more about this conflict, educate themselves and go out and and read. I have some book recommendations that I will happily oh. share uh, with yeah. you, Anne and Denise, um, to share with the listeners yeah. um, so people can properly educate themselves uh, because you can't yes. do it on TikTok. You can't do it on um, Instagram. There needs to be a deeper level of thinking in this conflict. So, yeah. Yeah, we're, we really appreciate your, your boots on the ground reporting for us. Yeah. We um, look forward to you coming back. And as Denise mentioned earlier in the show, we were, I think I said to you when we spoke about you leaving, that as your friend, I am thrilled and honored to know someone as valiant as you who would do something like that. And as a mom, I'm really, really angry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, those, it was those two sides. But you you know what? It takes people like like you to go actually see this stuff and then bring it back to us. And we're really, really, really grateful and, and honored that you came back and, and spoke to us on our very own podcast. So thank you. We're so happy to have you on as usual. We're going to 
We're going to get those recommendations from you. We're going to post them on our website, which is twoaveragegirlspodcast.com. We'll also post them on our Instagram, same name, as well as our Facebook, so that people can go on and um, get get some more insight with your book recommendations. So thank you so much for coming on, Aiden. We really appreciate it. There's also one... um, on Instagram, I follow them, and we mentioned this on the last podcast when we spoke to you. But stand with us is a great, a great um, follow on Instagram and Facebook. They have a lot of information. If you're if you're looking for information, go and start doing your own investigating to see what's going on. Stand with us is an organization that I think is great. So, yeah. thank you, Aiden, very much for coming on. Thanks for having thank me. you so much, Aiden. We appreciate it. I'm Ann Police. And I'm Denise Cooper. We are Two Average Girls. We'll see you next time. Episodes of Two Average Girls are free wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to hit the follow or subscribe button on the Two Average Girls main page so you never have to go searching for new episodes. Our editor is Aiden Bloomstein. Our social media producer is Samantha Stone. And original music for Two Average Girls is by Jason Fries.